0: Today's scripture comes from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Aaron. Morning, Arcadia. Now, right out of the gate, I know you're saying, hey, I thought this was the last week of Judges, and it is. Why are we reading out of Romans? Um, Because we're doing five chapters in Judges this morning, the last five chapters And really, I felt like the best way to sort of summarize uh, the last five chapters of Judges was by reading that section of Romans that talks about the problem of humanity when they suppress the truth, when when they try to press down the truth, acting like they're ignoring it, but literally pressing it down because they don't like the truth of God, but rather they like the truth of themselves. And professing to be wise, they became foolish as they walked away from God, professing to be wise rather than honoring the created order, they are, we are, human beings, we are part of the disordering of the created order which causes all of our problems. And I will tell you, these five chapters, w- when we get done with these, if, if some of you will be wrecked because you've been wrecked by this very problem that we're going to talk about today. And those of you that, that haven't been necessarily wrecked you should be wrecked by today's passage it's a tough passage it's going to be really hard we have been praying redemption wide about these five chapters for a couple of weeks now because we know this is going to be really hard for a lot of people it's going to be hard for us to try to communicate this well and it's going to be hard for us to also then help you understand that even in the midst of these stories that we see today There is still redemption, there's still hope, and God is still on his throne, and Jesus still saves. And so as we look at these chapters today, I just want you to be thinking about that, that that there is something that we're going to be looking toward. The first 16 chapters of Judges are mainly about the external threats to God's people. Those external threats were all brought about by their their disobedience and their idolatry, they were whoring after idols, we're told in chapter 2, verse 16. It's true, so their, their external threats were their fault, and we've seen that for the last 16 chapters, the first seven weeks of this series. These last five chapters are actually about the internal threats to the nation of Israel, to God's people, that are brought about in chapters 17 and 18 by what we might call religious chaos. Under the guise of religious activity, of, under the guise of religiosity, people acting like they know better than God, and that brings about chaos. And then chapters 19 through 21, the moral chaos that, that brings threats to God's people. And one of the things that we, we have to understand as we go through these chapters is that you and I are mostly linear people, and we try to read things. We think things should be read linearly, and generally that's okay. But in this case, for whatever reason, the author of Judges, the human author, whoever wrote it, by, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, wrote these chapters at the end of the book, but chronologically they belong somewhere around the end of chapter two. We need to remember that. I'm going to come back and hit that a couple of different times, but We have to remember that this isn't the culmination of what happens in Judges, but in fact, I would point to it and say this is the reason why we have the book of Judges, these five chapters. In some respects, we could say we maybe should have started with these chapters and then come back and gone through really 3 through 16. Nevertheless, just remember that. So there are two major stories today that we need to work our way through. It's kind of funny. I was talking to the guys uh, at the preaching collective a couple weeks ago, and I said, you know, this week we've got to do five chapters, and then right after Easter we're going to start the book of Titus in the New Testament, and the big assignment in Titus is we have to do four verses on one Sunday. So five chapters, four verses. So you, it's kind of an interesting thing that we're going through here. So five, uh, four, uh, scary, two stories, but three major comments just to get us started and get us into the context of this. Number one, I do appreciate these chapters in some ways, as hard as they are. Because it reminds you and I that when trouble comes to us externally, we are foolish if we don't start looking internally first for the cause of that trouble. But you know that's not our bent. When trouble comes to us externally, what do we do? We do what Eve did, I'm sorry, what Adam did. Adam did in the garden. When God came to him after they had sinned and he said, Have you eaten from the tree? What did Adam do? The woman, sorry Michelle, (laughs) where's Jackie? Um, (laughs) The woman you gave me. Blame shifting, blame shifting. It is just our nature, our fallen nature to blame all of our problems on someone else including God and sometimes even especially God rather than looking at our own culpability in the situation. Now, I'm not saying that every time we are culpable, but I will tell you for sure we are more culpable than we think we are and more often than we think we are. Kent Hughes says it this way. Blaming God for trouble we have brought on ourselves is an age-old strategy. Second comment. These five chapters, I've already mentioned this, I'll mention it again, they are so shocking at times that in many respects... (laughs) I don't appreciate them, and what I would prefer to do is just ask you to read them on your own and let's be done with it and let's move on to Lent, the Lent messages. But the truth is, I, I, God put them in the, in the Bible for a reason. And, and so sorting through why we need these narratives is important. And, and I think these narratives remind us once again of the estrangement that fallen human beings have from God, and yet in the midst of that, God's unyielding grace and love and mercy for us in the midst of all of that. And then number three, ultimately our problems generally are brought about by what Barry Webb correctly terms, and I quote, unbridled individualism and the worship of self. That's that's the narrative that we're going to start with today, unbridled individualism. Individualism and the worship of self. We'll see that clearly today, which really gives us our big idea. Here's our big idea. The catastrophic consequences of autonomous impulsiveness. I know some of you are like, that's a lot of polysyllabic words. I said that to David Massey, and he said, I have no idea what that means. Well, he went to Phoenix Seminary. What are we going to (laughs) do? He's still over there trying to figure it out. He's praying right now on the floor. Okay, you know what catastrophic consequence means, right? You, you know what that means. Okay, autonomous impulsiveness. What does that mean? Autonomous meaning, here you go, I'm going to follow my heart no matter what happens to anybody else. And that's really the message of our culture. The culture really never says, no matter what happens to anybody else, but that's what's implied, and that's what we're told. Just follow your heart, and everything will be fine. No, these five chapters are about people just following their heart, and it is a mess. And some of you have been on the receiving end of people who have acted autonomously in their impulsiveness, and you know how disastrous it is. And some of you have been the purveyors of that autonomous impulsiveness. And I think we need to be reminded of how disastrous that can be. In our culture, Luke Simmons says this all the time. He's the pastor of our Gateway congregation. He says this all the time. Uh, Tyler and I talk about how our, our greatest idol in our culture is probably comfort. And Luke says, I don't think it is. I think our greatest idol in our culture today is this idea that I'm going to do what I want whenever I want. That's our greatest idol in this culture. And the book of Judges is all about idol worship, and so we need to talk about our idols too. So like I said, chronologically, these chapters are, are actually really early in the book. They're just two generations removed from Moses and Joshua. That's it. Maybe 50 years. And it's really, it's as if the author is saying, oh, by the way, while all this other stuff was happening in chapters 3 through 16, this also was happening. And maybe it'll help answer some of the questions we've had about chapters 3 through 16 about why? Why would this happen? And he's saying, well, here's why. The hearts of the people, as, as Luther would say, were curved in on themselves. The, the people were only concerned about themselves. They were worshiping themselves. They were acting autonomously and impulsively. And it was destroying everything. And it really helps us to understand. This is, this is really important to understand. This passage today should help us to understand that when bad things happen, they don't just blow up out of nowhere. How often have we described when something bad, it's like, wow, I didn't see that coming. Boom! A relationship is blown up. Uh, Something else devastating happens, and we go, wow, where did that come from? It, It just happened. No, it did not. What we need to understand is that evil has been lying there, festering, from the very beginning, we just hadn't seen it or we hadn't, it hadn't manifested itself in a way that we could see it yet or we'd been deceiving ourselves or somebody else had been deceiving us. But it doesn't just happen overnight. Somebody doesn't just get up one morning and decide, I'm going to commit adultery. They don't do that. There are several ick, evil and wicked steps along the way. And that's just one example. All wickedness that seems to just blow up starts with that dark seed that we have in our heart. Evil does not just suddenly pop up. There are evil roots. The knowledge of the sin and the consequences is going to take time to manifest. But it's there from the start. And so what we need to do is we need to be alert and discerning. We're told in the New Testament, test the spirits. Be alert and discerning even when you're sure that somebody has the greatest of intentions. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you know, it's written, you're not supposed to commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at another woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, the act, the physical act of evil starts with the evil in our heart that's there from the beginning. It's why we need Jesus, y'all. We can't do this on our own. There's no way we can do it. Well, let's get started. It's chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. By the way, don't worry, I'm not reading all five chapters. I'll summarize some. So there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, not Micah the prophet. And he said to his mother, The thousand pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, The silver is with me. I took it. So he ripped his mother off for 1,100 pieces of silver. She said, Cursed be that man. Hope God smites him. And he's like, "Ah, That's me, Mom. Here's your money back. Okay? And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Reverse the curse. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand For my son to, here you go, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. She's making an idol. She's not supposed to do that. And it was in the house of Micah. Now, watch what happens. And the man, Micah, had a shrine. These are God's people. Yahweh, the whole thing, the, the, the Mosaic law, all that stuff. Forget about it. He made a shrine, and he made an ephod, which is that tunic that the high priest is supposed to wear. We talked about that in the past. And household gods. He also made a bunch of other gods. And ordained one of his sons who became a priest. Not even a Levite. Only a Levite's supposed to become a priest. And then look at verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In other words, nobody recognized that God, the Lord, was king. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The, the title of the message today is, Right in Our Own Eyes. That's, that's what happens. God says, hear me on this. God says this. Worship me as I am, not as you want me to be. Worship me as I am, not as you want to be as you want me to be. But Micah and his family decided to worship a God of their convenience, a God that was created in their own image. It's the old Luther quote, God created man in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. They wanted a God, they wanted a God who submitted to them and paid tribute to them. And, and let me tell you something, it, it's, it's like... Uh, <laughs> Sometimes we think, oh, they don't really believe in God, they don't really believe in Jesus, so there must not be any religious activity. No, there's actually more religious activity going on here by somebody who really doesn't believe in the one true God. That's the irony of this. There's lots of religious activity going on here. You see, that's us. Whether we believe in Jesus or not, all of us are prone to this. You know, Romans 7, Paul tells us that we're still struggling with the affections of our hearts, the dark affections of our hearts. And so we're all religious. We all have a code. We all have some altar that we worship at. And most of the time, it's the altar of me. We dress it up with some Jesus stuff every now and then. But God is calling us out on this problem of worshiping the God that we want to worship, not God as he truly is. Our altar where we generally worship is built on our glory, not the glory of God. That's a problem. And that's exactly what Micah and his family are doing here. Proverbs 16 says this, Every one of us has a way that we think is right, but in the end it leads to destruction. We all have a way that we think is right, but in the end, it leads to destruction. Every one of us, myself included, however, we read that and we go, "Ah, but I'm the exception. I'm the one who can outsmart God on this one. In the end, religion is nothing more than humans trying to gain access to God in order to control God and get him to honor us. Here's what religion is. It's asking God to bend His will to our will. Now, the whole Bible speaks to this phenomenon and this problem. Paul sums it up beautifully in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, there's a difference between the wise person and the foolish person. And it's a stark and obvious difference. And here it is. Verses 15 through 17. Look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, not as foolish, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He's saying the reason you need wisdom is because you're living in a fallen and corrupt world and you have to be smarter than the fallen and corrupt world and the only way you can do that is with God because you can't do it on your own. You can't outsmart the world. You can't outsmart Satan. So he says this, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You see that? The wise person... Seeks God's will and submits to it. That's the definition of a wise person. Seek God's will, submit to it. The foolish person is, here's my will, here's my desire, now everybody submit to that, including God. That's the fool. That's how how the Bible talks about wise and foolish. Proverbs in the Sermon on the Mount, and here, Paul. Paul. So religion is humans trying to gain access to God to get God to bend his will to us. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, God's covenant love for you and I, born out through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, that's the gospel. The gospel is actually what gives God access to our hearts so that we might be conformed to the image of his son, as Paul says in Romans chapter eight that's the gospel, that we would submit to his will, that our will would be bent to his. When we pray to God, it's, it's not trying to get God on our agenda. It's us, it's us understanding how to submit to his will, seeking his will. And in that way, we will start to become conformed to the image of Christ, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Uh, for most of us, you can look this up if you want sometime, not right now, but maybe later. Um... For most of us, our favorite religion, we, you don't even know the name of it, there actually is a name for it now. Our favorite religion is something called Sheilaism. Has anybody heard of Sheilaism? It's not out of Australia, don't worry, okay? Here's the definition of Sheilaism Sheilaism is an individual's system of religious belief which co-ops strands of multiple religions chosen by the individual. And there are two common characteristics to Shilaism. Number one, the strands of these religions are chosen with little or no serious theological consideration. And number two, the strands are chosen based on what is easiest and most comfortable for the worshiper. That's Shilaism. I'm a Shilaist. Kent Hughes writes this. Religion that is self-made and self-serving is nothing more than the worship of self. And Proverbs 16 says that leads to destruction. So, we go on from there and we're told in chapter 17 that a wandering Levite, that's a problem. Levites are not supposed to be wandering around looking for the best way to minister to people. They are to be uh, assigned and to minister to who God is and the high priest assigns to them, but he's wandering around, and he ends up at Micah's house. So here's what Micah does. Micah sees, oh, now I have a real Levite. My son's not an actual Levite. I had ordained him and given him all the religious accoutrements. I've done all of this stuff, but you know what? Now I have a real light. He disses his son. He said, get out of here. Mr. Levite, you are now invited into my home, okay? It's fascinating, and here's what happens at the end of chapter 17. And Micah ordained the Levite and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, listen to this, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Uh, Micah has no right, first of all, to ordain anyone, but he goes ahead and does it. The Levite's job is to minister to the people of God, not a person or a family of God. That's a problem. Uh, The Levite's motivations are all wrong, as we're going to see later. The Levite's motivation boils down to two things, his personal glory and wealth. That's it. And Micah's motivations are also all, all wrong. This is what you might say is the first appearance in the Old Testament of the prosperity gospel, if you've ever heard about that. Worship God and you're going to be rich. Cool. Where do I sign up? So then verse uh, 1 of chapter 18 sets the tone for the rest of this story. In those days, there was no king of Israel. The author just keeps repeating that. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for, in, for until then no inheritance among the, tri- the tribes of Israel had fallen to the tribe of Dan. So remember back to the end of chapter 1 a couple months ago, the tribe of Dan never got their land, and the reason is, you know, as we work through the progression of chapter 1, uh, we saw that Increasing resistance came against the Israelites because they had not been obedient to God. And Dan was the last tribe to kind of go and get their land, and they're the first tribe that got completely pushed back. They, didn't even, they weren't even able to enter the land, let alone uh, coexist in the land with the people they had uh, conquered. So they're completely dri- driven back. So Dan is still looking for their land. The tribe of Dan is still looking. So the story goes like this. They take five Danites, and they send them out, on a, on a, on a, to spy out some possible land. So it's a mission of, of just kind of trying to figure out where they're going to go. And they head way north from where their tribe had been kind of ten, uh, hanging out in tents. So they head north, and along the way, they go through the hill country of Ephraim, and they run into Micah's land, and they run into Micah's Levite priest. Micah's nowhere around. And the priest tells uh, the, the Danites, the five Danites, about Micah's wealth and he shows them the religious accoutrements and, and, and they, talk, uh, they talk to the Levite and they get, kind of get the lay of Micah's place. And then from there they move on f- to go further to look for land. And they finally came to a town called Laish, which is in the far north of Israel. And the people there, they discerned as they watched the people of Laish, they said, ah, these people are wealthy and vulnerable, wealthy and vulnerable. They're ripe for the pickings. Now, remember, God is is nowhere in this text, but he's watching. We're told he's watching. He's not condoning any of this, but he's watching. So the five Danites go all the way back down to where the other Danites are. They grab all the warriors of Dan, 600 warriors of Dan, and they start the trek back to Laish to take Laish. And on the way, of course, they run back into Micah's house where the priest is there again, but not Micah. Let me read chapter 18, verses 16 through 20. Now, the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate at Micah's home. And the five men who had gone out to scout the land went up and entered the home of Micah, and they took the carved image... They took the ephod and they took the household gods and they took the metal image. They stole all of his religious accoutrement while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod and the household gods and the metal image, the priest said to them, kind of as they're walking back out, he said to them, what are you doing? And they said to the priest, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. It is, be- is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be the priest of a tribe and the clan and a clan in Israel? So the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. He went along with the Danites. So now it's clear. The priest's only motivation for doing ministry was his personal glory and wealth. That might be a problem. That could be a problem. Micah finally comes home, realizes what's happened. Everything is gone. His wealth, his religious accoutrements, and, and, and his, pre, his personal pre... They're all gone. He figures out what happened. So he goes and he gets four or five of his strongest guys who work in the land... And they, and they take off after the 600 Danites, and they have no trouble catching up to the Danites because five or six guys can travel much faster than 600. So they go up there, and as they catch up and as they get close, now these are all paraphrases, but this is what happens. You can read it yourself. They get close. Micah stands up, and he yells at the Danites. He says, hey, just what do you think you're doing? And the Danites stop, turn around. And they go, we're doing whatever we want to, bro. You think you're strong? Here's your stuff. Come and get it. Come on, bring it. And Micah goes, never mind. (laughs) Turns around, walks up. Here you go, here you go, here you go. If you worship something that can be taken from you, it will be taken from you, and you will be ruined, and you will suffer destruction. God will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus cannot be taken from you hard to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Really? He's all over the Old Testament. So, Danites with their priests and their religious stuff and their money, they go and they conquer Laish. Look at the last part of 18, starting with verse 27. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer for Laish because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they built the city and lived in it and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. Have you ever looked at a map of the Old Testament and you see that city of Dan on there? I can't help but look at that city now on the map and think that was once called Laish and everybody gave their life for this. But the, um, but the name of the city was Laish at the first and the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, that's how we know that this is close to that time, and his sons were the priests of the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh, which would have been when the Assyrians came in and conquered them. This is not a good moment in Israel's history. And in the end, doing what is right in their own eyes leads to a self-deluded narcissism that not only seems excusable, but it seems like it's the right thing to do. They're so narcissistic. But they went beyond just being able to make an excuse. They said, no, this is the right thing to do. As bad as that story is, it's not even half as bad as the next story, starting in verse 19. This is shocking, what we'll get into here. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, see how he keeps repeating that, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. And she was there for four months. So there's, there's no king, no God, no one's listening to God, no one's, no, one's, no one's in relationship with God. How far has the nation fallen? In just a few short years, how far has the nation fallen? The nation has fallen so far that a Levite, a holy dude, takes a concubine, a mistress, and doesn't even bother marrying her. Regular dudes aren't supposed to do that in Israel. But here you have a priest doing this, okay? And and she's unfaithful to him. Well, why not? He won't marry her. He won't commit to her. Little jab there, guys. All right. Why not? You know? And then she leaves and goes to her father's house. So after four months, he decides, eh, I kind of miss having her around. So he goes all the way down to her father's house. And it's so odd once he gets there, because he gets to the father's house, no mention of the woman is made, but instead the father and this Levite start to party for day after day after day after day after day. They're just having a party, one day after another. And she's never mentioned until it's time to leave, and he says, "Ah, okay, we're leaving, and she goes with him. And they're traveling, but they had left late, so they... They had a little problem about where they were going to stay, and so they go by a a town called Jebus. Jebus is a town that at this time was inhabited by non-Israelites. It was inhabited by foreigners, but Jebus would eventually become... The city of David. It would eventually become Jerusalem, but they had to pass by it because they knew they probably wouldn't be welcome there as Israelites. So they pass by it and they go to a town of of Gibeah, which was part of the tribe of Benjamin. So they finally get to Gibeah and they say, okay, these are our people. These are our kinsmen. Surely we'll find some hospitality and a place to stay here. So they go into the center of town and they're looking around and everybody's ignoring them. Nobody will give them any uh, hospitality. And so they're sitting in the center of town. It's dark. It's late. Nobody's around, and we're told that a sojourner in Gibeah walks through the center of town. Now, what's a sojourner in Gibeah? A sojourner in in Gibeah is a non-Israelite, a foreigner, who went to Gibeah to look for work, found work, and is now living in Gibeah among the Israelites and working probably temporarily, maybe for a few months or maybe a couple of years, but he's living there, and he walks through, a foreigner, and he sees these two Israelites, and he says, would you like a place to stay tonight? So he's hospitable to them. And so he invites them into their house, and everything is chill until uh, something happens. I call this Shades of Sodom. If you know the story of Sodom in Genesis, you're going to say, this sounds really familiar to that, and it does. So they're in the house, hanging out, pounding on the door starts happening, and we're told in Scripture, worthless fellows were pounding on the door uh, of the town of Gibeah, worthless fellows. The, The Hebrew there is literally sons of the devil. So sons of the devil are pounding on the door. And they say, bring out the Levite priest. We want to have sex with him. They're telling this to the sojourner in in Gibeah, the owner of the house or the guy that's renting the house. Bring him out. We want to have sex. We want to rape the Levite. So the man of the house, the, the sojourner, says, check this out. Now listen to this. He says, no, 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 guys. You don't want to do that. That would be a horrible evil for you to commit. Take my virgin daughter and his concubine instead. This is just fascinating. So they're going back and forth, going back and forth, and the the Levite, who has been conspicuously unavailable up until this point in the story, the Levite grabs his concubine in the middle of this, pushes her out the door, they close the door, And these worthless fellows abuse his concubine all night long. And then they leave. She crawls all the way back to the doorway of the house. That's as far as she can go before she collapses. (laughs) Let me tell you something. This is hard to read. For some of you, this, this, this is really, really hard to listen to. It's hard to teach and to preach on. It's hard stuff. I know for a fact that there are people in this room who have trouble sleeping at night because this conjures up some really tough memories. There are people in this room who have been abused physically, verbally, sexually. This is hard. And you're listening to this and you're saying, why is this in the Bible? Why is this in this holy book? why would God allow this to happen? I, I, don't, I don't quite know. I know it's there for a reason because, because God put it there. And maybe it's this. Maybe it's this. I've been, I've been studying the, this whole idea of, of rape culture. I've been reading a lot about it. It is fascinating how many people are raped and abused who believe that somehow they are at fault for what happened to them. They are guilty in some way. And the shame that they feel is palpable, even though this was done to them by someone autonomously acting impulsively. And maybe this is in here to let you know You're not guilty. And it was wrong. And I know the first words out of your mouth, then why doesn't God do something about it? He is. He has and he will. He did something about it at the cross and this thing ain't over yet. And maybe this is also in the Bible for this reason. There are many of you in this room right now who have never experienced a horror like this. You have no idea what it would be like to experience a horror like this. And maybe what we need, I'm one of those people, maybe what we need is a little dose of reality so that we can deal with compassion and empathy with people that this has actually happened to. Maybe that's why somehow in God's grace, this has ended up in the Bible. And we avoid it, understandably, but it's there. And maybe maybe that is the reason but it's there. So that morning, Levite wakes up, opens the door, he's ready to go, steps over his concubine and says, let's go, keeps walking. Realizes she's not coming, so he goes back, picks her up, throws her over one of his donkeys, sideways, and off they go. And when he gets home, you think it's bad so far, When he gets home, he takes a large knife and he cuts his concubine's body into 12 pieces and sends it out to all the people in Israel, all the different areas of Israel, to all the different tribes in order to rile them up against the Benjaminites, against the tribe of Benjamin. This will rile them up. You open up a package and it's a body part, that's going to rile them up. Chapter 19, verse 30. And all who saw it, these packages that went out, said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up. Uh, since that day, the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Speak. So now chapter 20 is a very long chapter. It frankly deserves an entire sermon because of all the nuances in it, but essentially the chapter, chapter 20 describes the beating that the rest of Israel lays on um, the tribe of Benjamin. It isn't easy, though. Israel had 400,000 warriors. The tribe of Benjamin... Men, women, and children was only about 25 or 26,000 people. 50,000 people died in this civil war 25,000 Israelites, 25,000 Benjaminites. So it wasn't a route, it wasn't easy. It took them a long time to be able to beat the Benjaminites. But I want to give you one clear point of the evil nuance that we do find in this chapter. Again, just to help us to become good readers. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. Listen to this. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people, of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now, the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to to Mizpah, so they began to prepare for war. The Benjaminites did. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband, quote, of the woman who was murdered, he wasn't her husband, of the woman who was murdered, answered them and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me And surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her into pieces and sent her throughout all of the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed, they, the Benjaminites, have committed abomination and an outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. So... Here's what I would call the nuance of manipulation. Does anybody see the manipulation here by this guy? Anybody see it? He says, the leaders of Gibeah came. No, 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 no. These were worthless fellows. They weren't the leaders of the town. They came to kill me. No, they came to have sex with you. I'm sure it wouldn't have been pleasant for you. Nevertheless, they didn't come to kill you, so you lied there to feed on the emotions of the people. And... They violated my concubine. But who's the one that threw the concubine out in the first place? He did. You ever heard the term victim righteousness? Kind of a big deal in our culture today now. Victim righteousness, I've been a victim. See, see how hard this is to preach? I just talked about genuine victims. And now we're talking about a guy who wants all the righteousness of being a victim, but he's not a victim himself. His wife, his concubine was the victim. But he says, oh, no, I'm going to take all of that glory due to my, my concubine and bring it to me. I'm, I've been victimized here, and here's what victim righteousness says. Therefore, I'm a, I've been a victim, therefore you have to do what I say. You must do what I say. But notice how he manipulates it. Now, consider this and give me some counsel. What do you think they're going to say? They've got their swords already. Let's go get them. That's what they're going to say. Here's the big idea, the catastrophic consequences of autonomous impulsiveness. How many of you have been on the receiving end of someone who only does what is right in their own eyes? How many of you have suffered the consequences of someone autonomously acting impulsively? This is reality. This points to something bigger than us. This is why we need a true judge, a true deliverer, a true savior, the perfect one who went to the cross on our behalf because he loves us so much that we can't save ourselves, but he's going to do it for us. And then he's risen from the dead. And he's alive today. And that's where we find our deliverance. That's where we find our justification. That's where we find our righteousness. That's where we take our suffering. That's where we find hope and peace and grace and love and mercy is in the person of Christ. This passage again points us to the reality and the person of Jesus Christ who is alive and lives with us today. He's alive, not alive. Sorry about that. I teach public speaking. Isn't it ironic? So he rallies 400 Israelites against Benjamin. In the end, 25 Benjaminites are killed men, women, and children. Only 600 Benjaminite men remain alive, and now they're living in the hills of Ephraim. They've run, and they don't have any wives. And so now, <laughs> so now the Israelites are going, Oh no, what have we done? We've killed all the women of the tribe of Benjamin. Now the Benjaminite men don't have any women to make more babies with. We're going to lose an entire tribe of Israel. What have we done? God, why have you allowed this to happen? Literally, that's what they say. So they go, well, we've got we to find 600 wives for these guys. We just killed their whole city. We've got to find 600 wives for them. So now the story gets even worse. Look at chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, none, none of us shall give our daughter in marriage to Benjamin, so they can't give their daughters. And the people came to Bethel and, and sat there until evening before the Lord. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, why is all this happened in Israel? That today there should be only, there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come out in the assembly of the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother. And they said, One tribe is cut from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of uh, our daughters for wives. And so to console themselves, here's what they did. To console themselves, they figure out that the town of Jabesh Gilead didn't send anybody to help them with this war, so they set out to another Israelite town, Jabesh Gilead, a town of about 10,000 people. They go to kill them to make them feel better about the, all the Benjaminites they've killed. Literally, that's what they did. We're going to go kill you to make us feel better about killing them. That's literally what they did. So they kill everyone in Jabesh Gilead, 10,000 people, except 400 virgin women. Now, I'm not sure how they figured all that out, but they had 400 virgin women left. And so they take those 400 virgin women to the 600 Benjaminite men, and they go, there you go. And then some guy with a green visor on and a CPA license, he goes, "Uh, wait a minute, the math doesn't work. We're still 200 short. So they go, now what do we do? We need 200 more. Well, don't worry about it. Here you go. Chapter 21, starting in verse 16. Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for the wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters for the people of Israel it's sworn. Cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is uh, north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, to, uh, to, and south of Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vi- vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man, his wife, from the daughters of Shiloh and go back to the land of Benjamin. So they said, we'll solve the other 200. We'll just kidnap these women. It's fascinating, isn't it? Then, then, verse 23. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. That word inheritance is used twice. In the last line of the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Believe it or not, in verses 23 and 24, that's where you see that glimmer of hope. Even these guys, even these guys had an inheritance and had a hope. They still had their inheritance. I know this is really hard to remember, but the presence of chaos does not necessarily mean that God is absent The presence of chaos does not necessarily mean that God is absent. They still had a future with God. Did you know that you and I still have an inheritance with Jesus even when we sin grievously? How many of you have sinned so grievously or even not so grievously and you've thought how could Jesus possibly love me? You still have an inheritance. Now does this give us license to sin? You always have to walk this line of tension and the answer is no. Uh, There's a There's a letter, uh, some people would call it a New Testament postcard because it's really short, in the New Testament called called Jude. It was written by Jesus' half-brother Jude, and he writes this in verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, here you go, who pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying people who use the grace of God as a reason or an impetus to go ahead and sin all you want, you're perverting the grace of God and you're denying Jesus by doing that. God's grace should never be presumed upon as license. Jesus doesn't give us the right to sin, but rather he gives us the assurance of salvation. He gives us the assurance of salvation. And that should result in gratitude and not entitlement. Right now, somebody might be going, how's Frank going to save this? I'll do my best. Three things to know as we walk out of here. Actually, as we go into our time of response. Number one. Outward gains often come at the expense of inward losses, and inward gains often come at the expense of outward losses. Jesus once said, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet lose their soul? He's saying, be careful of outward gains when they destroy your soul. He's also saying, if you invert that saying, he's also telling us that sometimes uh, the only way that we're going to have inward soul gains is if we forsake some of the outward stuff that we would ordinarily be pursuing and desiring. It's always interesting to me personally how I seem to become a much more godly person, a more, a more contented person when things aren't going that well for me circumstantially. <laughs> so whenever I pray for godliness... It seems ironic to me, but true, that God tends to bring hardship. I've I've often thought, maybe I should turn that around. Maybe if I pray for emptiness, he'll bless me with a bunch of material stuff. You know? And see, there I go, trying to manipulate God. Sheilaism. Okay? C.S. Lewis says this. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. Pain is is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The people of God hoard after the outward luxuries of life and it costs them their soul. Here's number two. God's people are called to shun their glory for his glory. God's people are called to shun their glory for his glory. We need to realize that the only power we have in this world comes from God, and that comes when we finally humble ourselves and admit our weaknesses as Paul does in Second Corinthians chapter 12. I had this thorn, and I asked God to get rid of it, and he said, no, 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 because my strength is made perfect. My power is made perfect in your weakness. We're called to tear down our idols and fix our adoration on the one true God. The people of Israel totally missed this, even though they had been called to do that. The apostle John ends his first letter in the New Testament, 1 John, with these words. This is how he ends his letter. This is the end of the letter, these words of love, love and wisdom. He says, beloved Keep yourselves from idols. Beloved, keep yourselves from idols. You know, that's what Jesus did at the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, it appeared to everyone that Jesus was being torn down. But in fact, at the cross, what Jesus was doing was he was tearing down the idols of this world, he was tearing down the false gods. And then through the resurrection, he became the single altar the single source of our worship and adoration, the single one true God who saves and delivers and defends. And finally, number three, remember, the more thankful we are to God, the less we're going to take credit for our blessings and our success, the less we will forget what he has done for us, and the less we will look to other gods and idols for our identity and fulfillment. Let me tell you something. Repentance beats whining every time. We are prone to whine and what we need is repentance. Repentance beats whining every time. God's people constantly forgot God and therefore they were never grateful for what God had done for them. He had brought them out of the land of slavery and into the land of milk and honey. They forgot him and look what happened to him. You and I can never forget Jesus. We can never forget what he's done for us. And it's why every week... We serve communion here. And so I'd like the communion servers to please come forward. Today, I want you to respond today. We talk about our response by, by taking communion together, coming to the Lord's table. We, we give if we're prepared to give. We sing a song. And we're going to do all of that today. But, but today, especially I just, I fear that even though it's just once a week, even though it, it's still weekly, and I just fear that we start to get robotic about taking communion. Remember Jesus this morning as you take communion. The point of this is to remember him so that we're grateful for what he's done and proclaim him and his death until he comes again. Also, during this time, we'll have elders and deacons and pastors in the corner to to pray with you. If you'd like prayer this morning, uh, let me pray and we'll get started with all of that. Lord God, we thank you for your grace and your truth and, and God, we uh, grudgingly thank you for this text today as dark and as difficult as it is because it points us to you and your son. Let us be reminded every single day, let us preach the gospel to ourselves every single day, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.